Hello, heroes. I'm Evan Rowland. And I'm Hannah Schaefer. Welcome to Design Doc. A single six-sided die clatters across the table. It's a five. The root symbol along this course looks like a hand with six branching paths, each displaying what appears like a kind of tool. A watch face, a compass, a magnifying glass, a rope, a hammer, a knife. We roll again. A one. A player explains the symbol as they see it, but with no explanation of what it represents. I see a war hammer, Emily says. The next player must explain the first meaning of that symbol, inspired by the question, what drives the people here? They're driven by conquest, a desire to expand their empire, says Becky. Finally, one more player is asked to provide a deeper meaning of that symbol, inspired by the same question. They're obsessed with tools, Evan says. They're always advancing their technology to dominate others. A hazy image of the society starts to form before us, but we discard it, instead testing a few different techniques of the symbol reader. What happens if we all come up with meanings, writing them on index cards before anyone shares, so no one person influences the entire group? What if we add more questions than the initial world-building branch, questions like, what troubles the people here? Finally, we experiment with what world-building might look like with no pre-written questions, Is there such thing as a bad question? Can one player throw off the world creation for the entire group? We ask questions like, what kind of cars do we drive? But it ends up being a good question, and we create an entire world of Mad Max-style death racers. Maybe this symbol reader has potential. Maybe we're ready to start exploring some worlds. Over the last few episodes and the last few weeks, we've been focusing on the junk poets and agonizing over how to get them into the different worlds, how to get them around the library, how they move and meet each other, and what the rules are for controlling them. Since then, we've gotten emails from listeners and ideas from our playtesters about how to resolve a lot of that. And it's very good ideas and a lot of stuff we want to try. But before we do, we want to step back or step away. (laughs) Before we do, we want to side. We want to we want to (laughs) sidestep and look at creating worlds and exploring those worlds. Because whatever the junk poets end up being, they should be in service of exploring the worlds of Quislandia. So figuring this out should help us come to a final decision about them as well. I think that this sidestep isn't actually a sidestep at all. I think it's more of like a return to the correct path. They're all good paths. (laughs) But it's, I mean, it's like if you look at the original Questlandia, uh, world building happens before character creation starts. And obviously the two inform each other. But I think this feels like the right move to kind of like take a step back and revisit world creation to see what that tells us about how to put the junk poets in these worlds. After our first play test, when we found that we had a lot of roadblocks around how to get the junk poets around 
and how to actually jump into real play, we switched the playtest after that to conversation style, where we were just laying out some of our ideas and concerns and brainstorming with our friends ways to get through them. So in those conversations, we talked about the junk poets and who they were and how to get them to actually walk through the library and open up books. And we talked about the library itself and whether that's even the right term for it, whether it's a collection of old worlds or a place where people go to make new ones. And if that's the case, maybe it's more of a scriptorium. Yeah, one of our playtesters is a librarian, so we're getting, you know, the inside scoop on how much our library is not actually functioning as a library. And we're like, we'll do what we want. This is the future past library. (laughs) These are our (laughs) words. (laughs) This library exists outside of this time. Who are you to define what a library means, librarian? But nobody can really argue with a librarian. They always win. That's true. (laughs) We talked a lot about the journals, because a real problem with them became clear, which is that they have a length. If I give you a blank journal, it might have 40 pages in it, and when we start a world that's meant to fill out that journal, we have a commitment to fill out roughly that many pages. If we end up making this world and being like, nah, let's peace out, and we've only filled three pages of the journal, that's a terrible feeling. That's like a waste of a book. Yeah, you've given us like, you know, X number of dollars for this empty journal. All right, $100. <laughs> <laughs> so now we're rich and you're unhappy. <laughs> and that's only half of what we want. <laughs> we've been talking about how to solve this problem then because the the journals seem really beautiful and we want to figure out a way to incorporate those into the game. And we can imagine this, you know, shelf that people are building out with many, many Questlandia worlds. But if each journal has a finite number of pages, what happens if you run out of pages? What happens if you underfill? It's, um, we, we don't really have a satisfying answer unless these worlds are really, really rigidly constructed. Um, like those, did you ever have growing up those journals that like had a prompt every day or something? It was like today I feel, or on this day I had a memory. And like, as a kid, I was always like, don't box me in. Yeah. They give you the most open-ended questions. Like, how do you feel today? And I'd be like, shut up. (laughs) No. Chuck the journal across the room. So I don't know if that's an experience that we want to imitate. So we started looking at options. For flexible length journaling, some of that looks like maybe constructing a deck of cards because it can just have as many cards as you make and then you can shuffle them together and you're making these decks of worlds instead of journals. That has its own challenges though. There's certainly something really appealing about books on a bookshelf and it's hard to display decks of cards as nicely or describe a building based around that idea. A bunch of books, you have a library. A bunch of decks of cards, you have a Magic the Gathering game store. Well, yeah, and like one that looks really shitty. I mean, like, (laughs) you know, with a journal, there's sort of this, like, 
expectation of the medium that it's very like hand scrawled and you know your handwriting doesn't have to look good the the outside of the journal is beautiful with decks of cards they look like collector's items so to open up this box and have it be like you know our playgroup's shitty doodles of mountains mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> i don't know if that's an object that i actually want to keep around like it's funny but it doesn't feel like it has lasting value to me but this is what we said we were not going to get focused on today. Too many interesting questions. <laughs> <laughs> today we're talking about symbol readers. So to recap very briefly, in our first playtest, we tried some different methods for generating worlds. Two kinds of worlds, short little glimpse worlds and longer, meatier, play a campaign in it kind of worlds. For the short worlds, we had people answer questions that were on their archetype sheets that were, you know, if you're the ingredient seeker, you describe a ritual around food in this world that we're exploring. For the long worlds, we had a separate set of questions that we wrote, or about sort of things you observe, like I see a moment from the recent past, or I see a secret place. To begin the conversation about long worlds, we started by grabbing a book off the shelf we rolled the die, opened to a random page, and used the die number to say what sentence you go to. And then you pick one word from that sentence, and that's the seed of the world. Yeah, and like the only relevant word in the sentence that we had picked was probed, I think. Probing? Probing. And yeah. we were like, ugh. <laughs> yeah, probing was our word. So I don't know about that system. It was it was maybe a little bit flawed because even after we were, we were able to kind of branch off from it, like everybody could only envision what <laughs> <laughs> that the seed of this world was probing. The goal of that was to give a random first seed of the world so that nobody has the responsibility of coming up with that themselves because it's a heavy burden. If I say as the first thing we learn about this world it's going to be a water world and, you know, dirt is as valuable as gold, then I've boxed in the entire campaign, which might be many sessions to a certain vision. And I don't know, a lot of people didn't like that movie. <laughs> Wait, which movie? Water World. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, the the first person to, this is sort of a this is an issue that I think a lot of role-playing games encounter any or any like exercise where there's sort of shared imagining where one person is the first person to say like, oh, I'll go. I volunteer. Mm -hmm. And we did not want to just remove that feeling of one person says something, other people join in because the process of building off of each other's ideas and expanding on them has been the core of the old Questlandia games and it's worked really well there. The question is, like, how do we help support players to remove this pressure of being the first while also not giving the first speaker too much creative power? So meanwhile, both Hannah and I were listening to the audiobook of The Golden Compass, which is really good. It's, it's fantastic. It's really good. It's read by, like, <laughs> well, first of all, Philip Pullman, the author, is the narrator, which I hadn't realized at first. Um, and it, it's also read by this full cast of voice actors, and they're all phenomenal. And to those who aren't familiar with the series, it follows a world not quite like our own, 
and an adventure that spans multiple worlds as the story goes on. And it's a story about systemic collapse and change and uh, the struggle of the old ways and the new ones. So, a very Questlandia kind of story. Anyway, a playtest was coming up, and we had a few hours to prepare for it, and so I hastily put together a symbol reader for the playtest, which is similar to an object within those books. In the Golden Compass uh, world, the main character, Lyra, is in possession of an object called the Alethiometer, which is a truth-telling symbol reader that lets her answer questions about the present, the past, and even the future. And the symbol reader that we came up with was a little bit different because it's not used for telling truths or reading the future so much it is as it is saying, like, all right, let's learn about this world that we're about to enter. So we created our own symbol reader to use as a guide for creating some of our own worlds um, and to see if this was a viable tool to, you know, generate worlds in Questlandia. So we put 36 symbols around the edge. We divided them into six categories. And then we had players roll dice. First roll tells you what category. The second roll tells you what symbol within it. And then a final roll to determine the meaning of that symbol which we tried doing in a few different ways. At first, we just divided it into three categories. The most obvious meaning, a meaning below the surface, and then a deep hidden meaning. It immediately had some interesting kinds of answers when we started playing around with this. Like, it wasn't a smash hit, but it was really interesting. It's exciting to see when somebody rolls it and they get a tree, and we ask them to come up with a hidden meaning of what a tree could mean. It's kind of exciting to see what they'll come up with. In that playtest, though, I kept forgetting to do the hidden meaning. Like, I kept going for sort of the obvious meaning or a second meaning. Um, And my instinct tends to be in games that I'm playtesting that when I forget that a thing is supposed to be a thing, that it's not actually a great idea. Like, that other people will definitely forget. Uh, And... I mean, maybe maybe that's not true because, you know, when you're playtesting, you do so many versions of a game and you start to mix the versions in your head, but I just kept forgetting. So I think that at this point, we're scrapping that idea. Are we, though? The idea that each of these symbols might have many meanings and that we can uncover them through play, there might be a way to make that work. And we've still been throwing out some ideas of how to how to negotiate that. Oh, yeah. I mean, there was just this specific... This specific line of questioning. I mean, I think that one of the interesting things about playtesting is like sometimes you can ask the same question, but the way that you ask it to different playgroups makes that question a success or a failure. Like wording sometimes has to be so precise. Yeah. Um, so there was something about this wording of like the obvious meaning, a deeper meaning, a hidden meaning that for me was putting too much creative burden on the process. Right. There was also the question of, Once we get to this symbol, who interprets it first? Is it the same person who made the roles? Can the same person describe all three meanings? And if you're alternating it, how do you keep that fair and make sure that one player isn't dominating? So we tried like a dozen variations of this with our very, very patient playtesters. By the end of it, my my memory of the final version that we tried 
had one player rolling three dice, one to decide the branch, one the symbol, and then one to determine the meaning of that symbol, one of six meanings. So above each symbol, there'd be space for six different meanings of what it could represent. Then that player would remove the first die, the die that showed us the branch, and give us the most obvious meaning of this symbol. So if it was a tree, the meaning might just be plant or growth or tree. (laughs) Yeah. Went for the second most obvious there. (laughs) (laughs) After that, a different player takes another one of the dice up from the table and tells us a way that it relates to the society. They might say, like the tree, this is a growing society that's trying to reach greater and greater heights. Or they might say, they live in the trees in this world. They are trees. That, that's a good point, yeah. <laughs> then there's a final die there. And this is the deeper meaning die. And a third different player picks up that one and says something less obvious about how the symbol relates to the society. They might say, this society is fastidious about keeping records And like the rings of a tree, they record their past. That's good. See, I would, uh, I'm still struggling. I was like, uh, (laughs) what would I have said? I don't know. They plant their roots. No, that's a good one. But is that that really the hidden meaning or is it the deeper meaning? I mean, these are the things that I feel like we're going to be arguing about. Well, you know, if we rolled a four, we just say that's meaning number four. They plant their roots. And then on your your alethiometer, you'd write right onto it. Oh, that meeting yeah. Four yeah, but I never roots. liked that. Okay, we're going. You never liked that? No, I hate, I, that's the idea I don't like. Oh, that's the no, last one we talked about. I know, I don't like it. Did I not say that? No, Maybe you I just it. Yeah, I just bit my tongue angrily. <laughs> I thought it was <laughs> the good. The scars are still there. <laughs> I mean, the cool thing about that is that you end up with a customized alethiometer based on the answers that your groups have come up with. And you can even keep it between sessions and play with a new cast of people, but there'll be some meanings filled in around the edge. I will think about this idea. (laughs) Good. (laughs) Another thing that's cool about the symbol reader, and um, I think really worked with this idea of the first player kind of just saying what they see without interpreting, um, without interpreting its meaning, is that we really urged players also to not say out loud, like you roll and to urge players to not say out loud, like, oh, we got the hammer. Because we want to give that first player the opportunity to say something that's not hammer, if that's a way that that tool reads to them. Or some of the images are a bit more abstract. Like one of the symbols to me read as a valley between two cliffs. So if I was the first player to speak after rolling that branching path, I might say, it looks like a valley. But somebody else might say a great divide or cliffs, or I think even maybe in that image, there's like a sun in the background. They might say sunset. The symbol reader creates this space for possible different interpretations, even though some of the symbols seem a little bit obvious. Obviously, there's some like visual accessibility things there. You know, if somebody can't actually see the symbols, we're not going to create a game that is unplayable for certain players. But it's it's created this neat space for in different interpretations of a single image. The splitting up of the first most obvious meaning 
with more layers of meaning being added has been a good way to divide up the burden of speaking first about a world that you might spend a long time in. That immediately worked. It felt like the pressure was off. You know, saying the first thing felt like no pressure at all. I say, this is a desert. And I don't feel too much like I've constricted the world that we're going to play in. Yeah, or as the first speaker that, you know, all eyes are on you to come up with something brilliant. Yeah. Because you're just like, uh, it's a tree. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the table bursts into applause. <laughs> and if it's a tree and you're trying to be clever, then in this place you're not playing by the rules because it says sort of say what you see. Mm-hmm. And then the next player gets to do something gentle, like a gentle sort of suggestion. They know that they're not going to have the final word. So they get to say something that isn't a deep commitment to the world. They can just say, you know, shade is nice. <laughs> we prefer it. <laughs> and then if you're the third player, like me, having to say the hidden meaning, suddenly you panic and the game is too challenging. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But sacrifices must be made. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll see. We'll still work on that one for me. So in any case, playing this with our friends was successful enough. It was fun enough that we're going to keep exploring it. And one thing that I felt like was really great in this playtest, and I want to kind of take into our future playtest, is like, because we've been so busy recently, we've really had trouble pulling together the type of playtest that, you know, our ideal playtest is like, we play a full session where we are characters and we're playing out our conflicts uh, and advancing the plot of the world. And here we haven't actually gotten past like the basics of how the symbol reader works. But one thing that we did in this one was sort of took an idea of how the symbol reader could work. So we ran it through using these, you know, initial mechanics that we'd come up with. And then we were like, well, that didn't quite work. Would you guys be up for doing it again? Um, and I think that, you know, while we were sitting there during that session, we did maybe like five different iterations of the rules. Yeah. And I'm, I'm kind of liking this way of playtesting. And I feel like, you know, we're lucky because we have a group that signed on for like a year. <laughs> <laughs> and they've signed on patiently. I think they know that. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but they've signed on patiently for like this type of experience. They're not like, oh, come on, give me the actual game. At least I hope. You know, I was so worried that we'd come in giving our friends kind of nothing to work with and giving them like kind of this empty waste of time experience. And then we ended up just like testing this symbol reader again and again, making these tiny tweaks to see like what little changes we could see in people's body language to see what felt good or what felt weird. So we were trying a bunch of different ways of using the symbol reader one after another. And as an example, one of those ways was where everybody would look at the result. You know, maybe we rolled baby and middle meaning. And everybody looked at that and was like, what's the middle meaning of baby? And so they take an index card and... The middle meaning of baby is like... No, don't tell me yet. Oh. Write it on your index card. Okay, tell me. Yeah, I'm curious now. Child? <laughs> I was going to say diaper. Oh, see, I would have swayed your creative process. So we'd each secretly write down our answers on an index card and, you know, puzzle over that and then share in a circle what we got. 
And so we'd go around and people would say diaper and child and bankruptcy. And (laughs) (laughs) I mean, so we tried this and people came up with ideas. And then we just had this stalemate at the table where everybody was just looking at each other. Like, yeah, that was a good idea. Your idea was good. Mine, mine was pretty good. Everybody was, was good. And there was just no way to resolve it. It was a complete stalemate. It was just like, how do you, how do you throw out so many people's good ideas? And I mean, it's interesting because like we did this same process this past weekend when we did our Make Big Things staff retreat, where we were trying to come up with like taglines for our next game. And instead of brainstorming together, we all wrote things down on index cards and then we read them out loud And then we sort of brainstormed towards a conclusion based on the ideas that we all seem to care about. And it worked so well there, but it didn't work at all in this role-playing game. To be fair, at the retreat, it did not feel like playing a game. Like, it it wasn't like, it wasn't carefree. It was kind of tense. No, it was, I mean, it was super tense. Um, Because we all really cared about it and hashing it out wasn't easy. And that's with three people who are... We've worked together for years now, and we have a lot of understanding, and on a baseline, we're all on the same page. But still, this was like a really difficult process. So maybe, I mean, it's like maybe that process could work in a role-playing game, but the idea of just trying to come up with the second meaning of a symbol for baby (laughs) taking two hours uh, isn't a great way to start a game. No. I mean, it has its place. (laughs) Gaming's a big place, and and I maybe would play that one too. But I think we can do better for Questlandia. But this style of playtesting, where we tried that out and ditched it and tried something else and kept going, was, was amazing. And that was a great way to... It's kind of like getting like 10 playtests worth of information from a single night. Yeah, I'm feeling really good about this sort of micro playtesting. I don't know, like play. I, some people maybe call this play storming, but this idea where rather than us coming up with like the system of like, this is the way we're going to do character creation. This is the way we're going to do world building. Now we're going to all create our world and jump into a conflict. Like micro testing these smaller parts of this, uh, the system, it's really working for me. It feels really productive. And it's kind of changed the way that I'll be I'll be thinking about playtesting moving forward because I had this idea that the only way to use my friends' time productively and that would make it worth it for them was to kind of like pack in the whole game and test the whole game. But I think in some ways we're actually kind of, I don't want to say respecting their time more because you never know what's going to work and what's not. But like doing this thing where we just like iterate and iterate until we see this one part of the game that feels good. I feel a lot better than like dragging them through three hours of like a series of kind of awkward design choices. It helps that uh, with our group, everybody is so excited about this part of the process about trying out different rules and thinking about solutions for social dynamics at the table And I don't know if that'll hold true for every group, but with this table specifically, people have been immensely supportive and full of great ideas for iterating on these rules and 
just willing to jump in again and again and throw out what was good about the last one to try something new and compare the two, which is, I mean, I think it's as much a compliment to the people as it is to the process that we're trying here. I mean, to our credit, I think we also offer good snacks. We had pretty good snacks. (laughs) Wait, what were our snacks? Oh, no, we had those like very thin Oreos. Oh, yeah, we did. We bought, it was like Oreo. Oreos have like a million different flavors now. Yeah, we got like gourmet. This was like the first time I'd checked in on the Oreo aisle since I was a kid. Mm Mm-hmm. And there's like different flavors. They're iterating too. Like I thought the last time I checked (laughs) it, they are. (laughs) You can just imagine the Oreo testing room where they're just like, I'm going to squeeze an avocado onto it. What's that like? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. There are so many Oreo flavors. Yeah. So we bought these like thin lemon. There's different thicknesses now too. So I got thin so everybody could feel empowered to eat double of them. We're not just designing RPGs here. We're talking about <laughs> snacks. We're going to cover it all. We'll, we'll design the world. I think an episode based on snacks would actually be really fun. Because I think it's actually... Should an that be our next episode? Maybe. This special snack I think episode? people are going to start to suspect that we're stalling. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you just say it outright. Is there actually a game here? So we tried the symbol reader in a bunch of different ways. And... I don't think we ended, I don't think we nailed it. I don't think we ended in a place where it's like, ah, that, ship it. But it's looking like we're going to stick with it as a tool for designing the worlds or, and maybe even resolving some conflicts in the world. The symbol reader is interesting because I think we drafted it up as this really like last minute solution kind of, you know, inspired by reading Golden Compass. And we're like, well, let's just make this little alethiometer type of thing to see if we can get a little bit further in playtesting this game. And then we shared the picture on Twitter and everybody loved it. Yeah, that surprised me. People who have (laughs) no idea what we're doing and never even have, like, have not gone any further with, like, what is this thing? We're just like, that's so cool. Yeah. It might be. I don't know bomb. what that's for, but this is so cool. And it's such a sketchy version of it. It's like you know, there's one one set of symbols. That's all the elements, like you know, water and fire and earth. And then it came to wind, and I like put down some lines, and I was like, <laughs> oh shit. And so it just it just is a little box that says wind. <laughs> <laughs> but Everybody knows that little lines mean wind. And it's a symbol reader, so if they don't, they're free to interpret it, you know, mm-hmm. based on their own experience. I do like, is it the only one with it's words on It's the only on one it? that says what it is. <laughs> like 35 beautiful symbols and wind. People were going to show up in five minutes, and I was like, no, that line, it looks like water. No, now it looks like an arrow. Like, wind. Yeah. <laughs> um, so this is, I mean, I think this is one example of where this like public design process is really contributing to the choices we're making because I think this could have been a a tool that we easily threw out. And then based on how well it's been received and how excited people seem about it, it's at this point, I think we're pretty confident that it will stay in the game. It seems a lot like it. Yeah. I mean, we like happy people. We do what they say. (laughs) You know, interpreting symbols feels like a really good way to generate these kinds of discussions for building worlds. And I feel surprised that there's not, that I don't know offhand of any games that really do that. 
So if we are sticking with the symbol reader, we need to overcome some of the flaws that are inherent with this approach. One of which is just that if you're using the same symbol reader over and over, you'll get the same result over and over. And what's that like? Does it get really boring? Is it just like, oh, we, it's baby again. <laughs> <laughs> Forget about the baby. <laughs> The 36 symbols feel really cool at first, and I think that we're still in, like, the honeymoon phase with this symbol reader, but there's going to be this point where, you know, we interact with this object a few times, and, like, it suddenly feels kind of tired. In The Golden Compass, they have the alethiometer. You can read it. It'll tell you the truth about anything. So it's obviously a pretty powerful object, but it gets used maybe just a dozen times over the course of, like, the thousand-page adventure. You know, the author knows if you have this sort of all-powerful tool, you don't want to overuse it. You don't want the characters consulting it for what to eat for dinner. Like. <laughs> <laughs> don't use this object the way I would use this object. <laughs> like confronting, you know, choice paralysis in the Oreo aisle of the grocery store. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, it would have gotten busted out then. <laughs> So if we're using it in this game, we've got to think carefully about when you're allowed to consult it and how that can stay special and feel fresh. Because if we're going to put the work into making it and producing it as some, some type of object, I mean, maybe it won't be a physical object, but maybe it will be like a sort of beautifully rendered piece of artwork of the symbol reader. Like if we're going to put that work in, you also don't want it to be something that you only use once. Yeah, you want to get a lot of mileage out of it. There's also the possibility of having it change over time. Maybe you're adding new symbols to it. Maybe we have stickers. I don't know. <laughs> Questlandia legacy. Mm-hmm. Another question is what kind of questions do you ask of the symbol reader? And what's it good at answering? Yeah, so I think we've playtested a, a few different ways. One is that when you go in, you're answering a specific question like, what drives the people who live here? What troubles the people who live here? And then in this last playtest, we did another version where uh, there's like no starting question. You are just sort of rolling or, you know, rolling the die, following the path to navigate to this specific symbol. You get baby and you start to kind of interpret based on that. I think that worked, but I'm trying to remember that a lot of the people who are sitting down at the table are really familiar with this game, and so they may be jumping into world building and answering questions that are kind of implicit to them. My memory is that we, you know, we're creating a new world to enter, and we rolled a symbol that depicted like two cliff faces with a wide gap between them. So one person said, okay, the symbol means divide. And the next person said, okay, this world involves a family that's divided. That's in like a great uh, kind of disagreement. And that's what kicked off our whole world. And it's memorable to me because that's the smallest scale Questlandia world I've ever seen. It has a much tighter focus on like a smaller scale conflict than the usual, you know, kingdom destruction Questlandia game. I loved that it could naturally give rise to that kind of story by not giving a framing question. Because, you know, the typical framing question was, 
what drives the people of this world. And, you know, we have a family that's divided isn't an answer to that. Another thing that we playtested was the idea of, like, if we don't give players questions that they, they're already answering to, you know, interpret these symbols, and we are asking players to, like, you know, ask a question at the table, ask a question about this world, is there such thing as a bad question that's going to sink the entire game? Right. So we spent a lot of time trying to come with, up with bad questions, and it turns out it's kind of hard to come up with bad questions on the fly or to know exactly what what a bad question looks like. Um, so I had tried to throw out the question, uh, what kind of cars do they drive it, as the follow-up to this initial world building we'd done with this, like, you know, generations long, long feud between these families who lived at two different sides of this gap. But it turned out that asking what kind of cars do they drive was fine. It's like it turned into sort of a Mad Max, like crazy apocalyptic, just awesome setting. (laughs) (laughs) It was just fine. Yeah, it was like suddenly we had sort of called out that like, okay, by asking this question, we're saying that cars are an important part of this world and this society. And there's a danger because you, you know, you really get into like the leading questions territory here. Uh, But in this case, it worked. But we kept working at it to try to find a bad question. Luckily, we had some people at the table who were gifted at coming up with actually bad questions. <laughs> I think somebody asked, what happens when the aliens crash in? And that gave everybody at the table pause, because we were all like, oh, that... It was the good type of pause, too. It's like the type of pause when you're like, this is awkward. Yeah. This like, isn't uh, really... Okay. I'm going to reach for one of those Oreos. <laughs> Now we're playing with aliens. Great. Yeah. It's like it messed with the intimacy of the family setting. It had nothing to do with anything else. Oh, and somebody came up with a great follow-up too, which is like, and it turns out the aliens were all a dream. (laughs) (laughs) But when we took another look at that question, what we found is that it takes a number of bad questions in a row to actually really derail things. That when we were trying to bring things back in, we succeeded. The aliens, for instance, we ended up talking about them as, you know, a species that could take the form of the people in this world. And so the people were paranoid about who are we really talking to? Are we talking to somebody who's actually there or not? Are we talking to somebody who's actually who they say they are? And then that level of paranoia kind of meshed nicely with the feud of the family, and things got back on track. It's too much to expect any game can really hold up to a bunch of players trying their best to derail it. <laughs> Most games can't handle that. It also relates to the a sort of theory of playtesting, right? Where it's like, some people go into a playtest, some players will go in thinking, I'm going to throw everything I've got at this game and see if it can survive my onslaught of bullshit. And usually that's not as helpful as it sounds. Yeah, we should probably do an episode on playtesting at some point because it's one of my favorite things to talk about. And I have a lot of thoughts about what makes a good playtest and like how to bring a good spirit to a playtest. What we found in this case was that we could take one question that I don't really want to say bad. One question that, like, comes out of left field that is, you know, a different vibe and can work with it and make it fit into the game. And that's really good. 
And presumably, when you have a, a table of players who actually care about the game, when somebody asks a question that's disruptive, it's because it has something in it that they care about. It's what will work to get them invested in the story. They really wanted to put aliens in because right now they're fascinated by aliens and they want to talk about that. So if there's a way to integrate them, then you have a more engaged set of players. It's like if you were playing with a second grader and you were just like, I know there's going to be whales in this game. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) There's going to be humpback whales and killer whales. Mm -hmm. And some dinosaurs. Blue whales. With a volcano. (laughs) And like something about Saturn. And if you're willing to be flexible and integrate that into your world, your reward is that the two-year-old sticks around and doesn't wander off. (laughs) Second grader. Oh. Two-year-old is, you know, little. You'll have a bottle in your world. (laughs) (laughs) So this is all to say that we're not done experimenting with the symbol reader. I feel like, you know, we've reached a point where we can start to playtest some, you know, we can start to forward playtest and actually get players into a world, but this is not the final version. Yeah, I'm looking forward to iterating on some of those ideas, coming up with a way to make it work. So with that, we have your thoughts and questions. Thank you to everybody who has sent emails to the Design Doc email address, which is designdocpod at gmail.com. We got a good email uh, in the past few weeks from somebody who is still, everybody's still helping us with this question of like, how do we justify the junk poets entering these worlds? It's really good to have a big uh, brainstorm on this. <laughs> Just like to throw this question out to the collective uh, consciousness. Uh, and this person answered with a really kind of beautifully obvious answer, which is like, they're junk poets. They are people who have grown up on the outskirts. They're used to exploration. They have kind of like a spiritual calling and they want to seek ways to better their world. They're curious. Uh, Of course they would enter a book. Also their own world doesn't have a lot to give them. So they, they would constantly be seeking something different and better and they would just probably open it up and like dive right in. So framing the junk poets is just, you know, literally, it's the kind of people who would open a book and start writing in it. (laughs) That's who all of you are. Uh, I really like that idea. I really like it. Yeah, it's, uh, it makes so much sense to me. And it's also... Uh, giving me ideas about sort of lore that we haven't thought of, that, like, this library doesn't have to be such a surprise. Like, this could be a world where people know about these world weavers. Uh, This isn't something totally new. Right. And so it comes down to the idea that why do the junk poets enter these worlds? Because they want to. It's a good answer. (laughs) I wish we had thought of that. (laughs) (laughs) Because they're junk poets. Why not? Of course. Uh, So I really like that. Thank you. If you have questions or thoughts, maybe ideas for symbols that should be on our reader, you can email us at designdocpod at gmail.com. Or follow us on Twitter. It's designdocpod. Or you could follow us personally. I'm a drawn novel. And I'm Han Bandit on Twitter.
The design doc intro-outro theme was created by our friend, musician Pat King. Thanks, Pat. The Design Doc Podcast is hosted by the OneShot Podcast Network. If you enjoyed Design Doc, visit OneShotPodcast.com where you'll find other great shows like Warda. Warda is an original fantasy actual play podcast created by Ali Grauer and Drew Mershieski. It's one part Game of Thrones, two parts Downtown Abbey, served on the rocks with a twist of Agatha Christie. Discover magic, mystery, and more than a little socio-political commentary along the way. The city holds thousands of stories. What will yours be? And thank you to everyone who has left us a review on iTunes. It helps other people find the podcast, connects Design Doc with a like-minded audience, and of course, fills us with determination. Determination. Thanks for listening. We'll see you soon, heroes.